I'm going to invite you now to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 uh, as well. That's uh, where uh, we, will, we will be looking um, for the remainder of our time together during the sermon. I'm going to invite Henry forward. He's going to be reading for us in a moment. Uh, we're beginning a new series, looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. It's a six-chapter letter, and uh, we're only looking at the first three verses this morning, as you, can, as you can see from the back middle portion. So we'll be at this for a while. Um, the introduction that we're about to read, it'll introduce us to uh, Paul, uh, to who the Ephesians are, to the basic gist of the entire letter. Um, but let me just go back for a moment and give you some of the uh, historical situation that brought about this letter. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, uh, it records a time somewhere between uh, 52 and 57 AD. This is 20 or so years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And we meet the Apostle Paul, who first lands in the city of Ephesus. Uh, to begin what's described as an over two-year period of evangelizing, of discipling, and of planting new churches in that region. Ephesus was the capital city of a Roman province called Asia. Asia back then wasn't, wasn't a content, uh, continent. It was a, a Greek-speaking province of the Roman Empire. In modern times, uh, this is in the nation of Turkey. Uh, Ephesus was an economic powerhouse in the region. It had actually a lot of similarities with Halifax. It had a thriving, uh, prosperous harbor. It was a big city in the region. It had likely over 200,000 people living in it. Um, And it had tons of amenities, like only a big city can. It had gymnasiums and theaters. It had a stadium, a very large marketplace. It was a central place for education and learning. It held major tourist attractions. Chief among them was the Temple of Artemis. This was a spectacular cultural, uh, architectural achievement. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a proud and prosperous city. And like Halifax, Ephesus not only was, was prosperous and proud and prestigious, it was thoroughly pagan. It was in spiritual darkness and decay. And so in Paul's mind, in his missionary mind, he thought this place is ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Uh, The resurrected Jesus, he can deal with death. He's done it before. He knows what to do. His light can shine brightly even in the darkest of places. So in Acts 19, we read that Paul spent over two years preaching, healing, uh, building the church of Jesus Christ throughout Asia um, with remarkable success. Now, Paul was eventually chased out of the province of Asia. This is something that happens often to Paul on his missionary journeys. It's one of God's really unique ways to get the gospel to continue to spread to new regions. But years and years later, writing from a Roman prison, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church. The letter that we're holding in our hands, that we're looking at right now, this is the letter that Paul writes to them. He writes to these churches that he's been with from the very beginning, Uh, to people who uh, have taken their first steps in a life of following Christ, Uh, in a city, living in a city, working in a city, in a region that's filled with darkness, filled with opposition to the good news about Jesus. And Paul writes this glorious letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak the very words of God to the people of God, to people not too dissimilar from us, to churches not too dissimilar from this church. So let's listen now to God's very word to the church from the hand of his servant, Paul. Henry. Please join me in listening to God's word. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we celebrate Christ's resurrection and the power that he has to give new life to the spiritually dead. God, we ask that you would awaken us this morning. Shine your light on us through your work. Now we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I should probably say that Ephesians is my favorite letter in the New Testament. Uh, I, I remember probably, I was about 19 years old, um, reading Ephesians over and over again during the Easter break uh, of, of a semester uh, during my time working at a ministry in Texas. My hair was quite a bit longer then. Probably as I was reading, I had to brush it out of my eyes so I could see it. Uh, I was reading it out of the New King James version of the Bible. Uh, it was a maroon-colored Bible with gilded edges. I still have it. Uh, I was sitting on a nasty, old, used leather couch in our dorm. I was alone, I was reading it, and I was totally changed. The, the lights turned on like they had never turned on before. And this week, as I was reading through Ephesians a couple of times, as I was reading through, through some commentaries written about Ephesians, I, I was warmed again by its fire. I was, um, I was glad to learn that this is not only my favorite letter, but it's the favorite letter of many, many others. Uh, the great theologian and uh, pastor, John Calvin, I found out, it was his favorite letter as well. This is a very special word given to God's people. All of God's word, of course, is, is special, it's timely, it's inspired by God. But the message of Ephesians has been, for over 2,000 years, been uniquely powerful, uniquely transformative to people who hear it. John Stott, who's a British theologian, or was a British theologian, he notes how uh, many people have been transformed by this message. He notes particularly the story of a former uh, principal of Princeton Theological Seminary, a man named John McKay, who wrote this at the beginning of the 20th century. He wrote, to this book I owe my life. As he read through Ephesians, he says this, a new world was opened before my eyes. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. That was, I was finally really alive. How can a letter, an ancient letter, just what looks like to us words on a page, have this much power and effect on so many people? How can something so old seem so new to readers? able to give us a new outlook, new attitudes, to burn in us a newfound love for God and for others. How can, can we say, as we read through this letter together as a church over the next couple of weeks, over the next couple of months, God spoke to me through this letter, and I was finally alive. This letter has the power to do that, friends has the power to do this to our church, because God still speaks through this letter, just as he did to the ancient Ephesian church just as he's done through so many churches and readers through the centuries. How? Where, where does this power come from? Well, to understand that, we need to see three things. We need to understand, we need to see the author's, uh, sorry, the letter's author, we need to see the letter's audience, and the letter's essence. That's what we're looking at this morning. The author, the audience, and the essence. 
So first we're going to look at this. Look at the letter's author. Look at verse 1 with me and what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. The first two verses of this letter are actually pretty standard fare for ancient epistles. Uh, letter writing was a very common practice in the first century. One of the chief ways of communicating, this is before text and emails, of course, but people would write a lot of letters. And they would begin by identifying the author, the recipients, and a quick greeting. Now, there's something unique about this author, though, if you pay attention, in that He's writing not under his own authority, but under the authority of another. Paul addresses himself, look at it again, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle in Greek, it means a sent one. It was a title that Jesus first gave to his 12 closest disciples and followers. He hand-selected them and he called them his apostles. Uh, he personally uh, commissioned and sent them out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, uh, those who are under demonic oppression, uh, through Christ's power, to build Christ's church. And when we read Acts 19, the historical situation which brought about this letter to the Ephesians, we see just this happening in the life of Paul. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he describes Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons in Christ's power, and building uh, Christ's church. And this is because, as Luke records earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, Jesus himself hand-selected Paul. He personally commissioned Paul to go out and do this work. Look again at verse 1. Again, this letter, the author is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. See, being an apostle isn't something that Paul, you know, like earned or inherited from another disciple. It's not it's something, you know, you won in a raffle somewhere, all right? This was God's doing. In, in his introduction to the letter that he wrote to the Galatian church, a different church, Paul writes it this way. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. See, apostles, this is an incredibly unique office in the church. They were called, they were empowered individuals. This wasn't a club of like intellectuals or insiders who amassed wealth and power for themselves, but rather they were men who had seen Jesus, who had been chosen by Jesus, sent out by Jesus to serve his purposes. Nearly all of the apostles died in obscurity, either killed or rotting away in prison or in exile. Again, the office of apostle is God's idea. It's not Paul's. This is how Christ has chosen to build his church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, we'll see this in the coming weeks, says it like this, the household of God or the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See, the apostles' work, the work of apostles like, like Paul, their teaching is foundational for the Christian church. Let's not forget that every week when we recite uh, the creed together, uh, we, we, we recite it as being an accurate, historic, orthodox summary of the Christian faith, and it's called the Apostles' Creed. Right? Because it summarizes the essentials of what Jesus' authorized sent ones, his apostles, taught the church. Now, what does this have to do with the power that the letter to the Ephesians has uh, to change us, to transform us? 
Well, imagine that you, uh, you're, you're, you're in the Middle Ages and you're sitting in the middle of a besieged castle. You know, you're, you're some sort of like a, a rebellious uh, knight or monk of some sort. And you're surrounded, you're totally outnumbered, you're outgunned, you're outmanned, you're doomed. But lo and behold, approaching the gate of your castle is a messenger from the king, from the true king. And he arrives with terms of peace. And this ambassador comes to you and says, I'm authorized now to deliver this news from you. The king himself offers to you amnesty. He offers you peace. He calls you to lay down your arms. He extends his mercy to you right now. Will you listen? Now, what kind of silliness would it be for you, this already foolish knight, to scoff at the messenger and say, like, that's your opinion. Like, uh, you know, that's what you say. But you know what? I want to hear from the king himself. The messenger would be right to reply to you, you have heard from the king himself. He, he sent me to speak to you. Will you listen? See, some people, when, when they read through Paul's letters, when they read through the New Testament epistles, they scoff and they say, eh, Paul. Like, you know, they, they don't like the things that Paul says. Um, you know, they read his words and they think that he's just kind of airing his opinions, some of his personal thoughts. Or they compare Paul's uh, writings to the Gospels, to the red letters of the New Testament. They say, well, you know, Paul's kind of interesting, but Jesus' words, man, now that's something. This is, this is a deeply flawed and potent, potentially disastrous misunderstanding of who the apostles are and how Jesus has chosen to build his church. When we read Ephesians, we hear from the king himself. It's through his messenger, through his sent one, but the message is directly from the king. So how will you respond? How will you receive this letter? See, this letter won't be powerful if you receive it and you decide to stand in judgment over it. You know, to say, ah, you know, Paul's got some interesting thoughts, but overall, um, I'm not really into it myself. See, instead of standing over it, what we're called to do is to sit directly under it, to sit under its authority, to listen to what the king has to say to us this morning. Imagine how your posture, your emotional posture, maybe even your physical posture might change if you believe that the contents of this letter to the Ephesian church, what we're reading and holding in our hands, was given and authorized by Jesus Christ himself to you. That, that the king this morning has words for you offering you forgiveness of sins, peace with him. So the unique and the transformative power of this letter, it comes from its author, not Paul merely, but Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Second, this letter is transformative because of its audience. Uh, look at the second part of verse 1, to who this letter is addressed to. Look at it there. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned before, Ephesus uh, was a city in the region of Asia, the, the province, and this was a predominantly Greek area. There were small pockets of Jewish uh, people. The Jewish diaspora had gone there. There was a few synagogues that Acts 19 tells us that Paul preached in. And of course, like other big cities, there were other nationalities, other people. But Israel was nearly 2,000 kilometers away. This was Gentile territory, non-Jewish Greek territory. But listen to how Paul describes this majority Gentile, non-Jewish audience. He calls them saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, that might not seem shocking to you, but, but perhaps for some of you it does, because um, we often use the title saint mistakenly 
and apply it to a group of people we consider to be the super elite of the church, the creme de la creme. You know, like uh, Mother Teresa, that's a saint. Uh, the Apostle Peter, that's, that's a saint. Uh, Augustine. But here in Paul's letter, just like we see elsewhere throughout the Bible, the title saint is applied to all of God's people, to the most ordinary followers of Christ Jesus. This letter, as we go through it, we'll see that it's addressed to, to men, to women, to children, to slaves, to people who are in the lowest social category in the ancient world. And likely many of them, because of the gospel pre, uh, that, uh, that Paul has been preaching to them, they've just recently come out of very messy lives. You know, they've been at the temple of Artemis worshiping since they were a child, or they had been, you know, doing occult practice. We see that the occult was very powerful in the city of Ephesus. But Paul looks at them and he says, you're saints. He names them. He reckons them. He considers them saints. Now, that word saint is a very powerful title in the Bible. It carries the meaning of being uh, God's holy people. I have to explain all these terms. Holy, it means simply to be set apart, to be dedicated to the service of God, to belong to God. So in biblical history, this title, saint or holy one, it was mostly dedicated to the Jewish people, and in particular, the priests in Israel, because their job was to serve God in the holiest place, to, to work in the tabernacle or in the temple in Jerusalem. They could be reckoned as saints because they were set apart for God's holy tasks. The angels of God, they could also be reckoned or titled saints because they, in a unique way, have the immediate access to the presence and glory of Christ. They, they serve him without ceasing and adore him. So they could be considered saints. But God looks at the Ephesian church. <laughs> hey, you, stay-at-home mom, you're a saint. Hey, you, working as a household servant, saint, you're mine. I've chosen you. I've set you apart for my purposes, to do my holy tasks. How could God say that? Look at, look at the next part in verse 2. He says it's because these people are not only saints, they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to those who trust in Christ. They have faith in Christ. They're following him. They are, he terms, in Christ. Now that phrase, being in Christ, is, is perhaps the most significant phrase in all of the letter of Ephesians, which we'll be unpacking in the weeks to come. But because they're in Christ through faith, they're saints. That is who they are objectively. And they've got everything. If you look at verse 3, uh, we won't get into it so much today, but verse 3 is the beginning of this long run-on sentence, which Paul begins in verse 3. He doesn't end until verse 11, and he just celebrates the infinite blessing of being in Christ. He, he goes on just like this verbal stream of wonder and thankfulness and praise to God for what it means to be a saint, to be blessed, to be in God's presence because of what Christ has done. Again, he calls these average, normal people like you and I, saints. And this kind of naming is a very powerful act. Paul calls them saints, and this has the power to be transformative to them, to reshape the way that they look at themselves and the world around them, as it does to us who are in Christ. And listen, who we are called, we are called saints as well. See, in Christ, um, there's a phrase in, the, in, in Greek um, that describes this kind of reckoning or considering someone as being something. It's the Greek word logizomai. In Christ, we are logizomai, we're reckoned, we're considered to be saints. If you call a person by a particular name or a title, if you logizomai them according to that name, it can have a powerful effect on them, whether for good or for ill. 
Uh, this is illustrated really well in the Lord of the Rings story, all right? Uh, and we see this illustrated constantly. The theologian Fleming Rutledge, she kind of, she wrote an amazing book about the Lord of the Rings that uh, I, I, I got this from. She highlighted this for me. So if you're familiar with the stories at all, you know that there's, there's several times where people are, are given particular kind of names, and then they begin to be molded and transformed by that name. So in the story, the hobbit Sam, he reckons Smeagol or, or Gollum, he, he, he calls him over and over again, sneak, liar. And in some ways, this reckoning of Smeagol has a powerful, deteriorating effect on him. Gollum begins to descend into even deeper, sneaky, and lying ways. Strider, who is really Aragorn, the long-lost king of men, though undercover for now, roaming the wild as a ranger, he is logismide. He's reckoned and he's considered by many people to be the true king, even though he doesn't have a crown, he doesn't have a throne. And this reckoning of him has a transformative effect. It, it gives him courage and, and a grandeur and a boldness. The hobbits, who if you're familiar with the story, they are the oddest, simplest, shortest, least impressive creatures in all middle of earth. Uh, that everyone knows they have exactly no business to be involved in anything except for you know, like eating and sleeping and you know, occasionally hitting up a pub. But repeatedly, they are logismide. They are reckoned by characters like Gandalf the wizard as the very creatures that will bring an end to the evil that's plagued their world. They will do mighty deeds that will be told and sung about as long as stories are told, as long as songs are sung. And on face value, that title given to them makes as much sense to them as it should make sense to you. That if you're in Christ, you're a saint. You're, 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 you are set apart for God's purposes. You belong to him. If you're in Christ, listen, friends, this is what's being logismized to you. If you have faith in him, you're a saint. You're not whatever name that you give yourself or a name that has been given to you by other people. Stupid, shy, selfish, uh, slothful. You are no longer sinner or sexually broken. You're a saint. If you're in Christ, this is who you are. This is the name that has the power to transform and change the way you are. Why are you doing this costly obedience? Well, why are you here on church, uh, at church on Sunday morning? Well, I guess this is what saints do, just, just doing saint stuff. And if you're not in Christ, if you don't follow him, if you don't trust him, this is part of the offer of being in Christ, to be reckoned, to be considered to something that you feel you have no business being because of your past. You're a saint. You are set apart by God and for his purposes. So this letter, it can transform us because first of its author, second because of its audience, and finally because of its essence. The essence of the message of Ephesians and really of the entire Bible is found in the, in the relatively simple, it's seemingly a throwaway line that we read in verse 2. Look at it with me. Paul writes this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you some homework, okay? This is, this is your homework uh, for the church. Can you please make the letter of Ephesians uh, of special interest to you or to your family uh, for the next few months? Let me, let me ask you to read through this letter today in the, in the coming weeks from cover to cover. It's only six chapters. You can, you can do it in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, read through this letter. Get more familiar 
with what's happening in Ephesians. Because on Sundays, we'll be doing what we're doing this morning. We'll be taking a very close look at the text. This morning, we're only reading three verses, meditating, marinating on their meaning. And so it's important that as we zoom in on the most narrow aspects of this letter, we also are always zooming back to look at the much more broad story that's happening here. Ephesians, as we look at, look at it with a, with a close-range uh, lens, we will see that it has some remarkable theology, theology about uh, predestination, about the church. It gives some really remarkable ethical instructions for Christians and for the church. It has battle instructions for spiritual warfare. But what we don't want to do as a church is to miss the forest for the trees. Uh, The essential message of Ephesians, its essence, is really the central message of the whole Bible, and it's this, peace through grace. This is the message of Ephesians. This is the message of all of the scriptures. Peace through grace. Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians by by wishing on them, by by blessing them with grace and peace. And at the very end of it, if you read the whole book, you'll find that that's how he ends the letter. In the last verses of chapter 6 of Ephesians, he speaks again of peace and grace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He bookends this whole letter with these words. What's grace? Grace is the mercy and kindness of God given to people who don't deserve it and can't earn it. Grace is a gift that can't be won through your good deeds. It can't be earned through your great church attendance or your Bible reading streak. Grace is the kindness and love of God freely given to the undeserving, to the spiritually dead, to the willfully rebellious. That's his grace. What's mercy? Or rather, what's peace? Peace, uh, which has the Hebrew equivalent of the word shalom, a very loaded word, is wholeness. It's a completeness in in soul and mind and body. It's filling us up to the very core with things that we cannot fill on our own or manufacture on our own, even though we try. We try to find this type of peace and shalom through achievements, through possessions, through, through relationships and pleasure, through external beauty through strength. But true peace, the peace that we read about in the scriptures and the Psalms, uh, something that we can have even when we've lost everything else of worth to us, that kind of peace is given by God alone. It's a gift of grace. Look at how Paul uh, phrases it again. Look at verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gift that's being given to you through the cross of Christ. The message of the cross of Christ, if you were to summarize it, Jesus' suffering, his death, his resurrection, speaks this word to you, grace to you and peace. I was struck, I don't know if you're, if you're doing the Bible reading plan with us, uh, it's in the bulletin as well, um, the words from 1 John chapter 4 describing this grace and peace. He writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God, God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, that is the remedy of our sins. See, you and I are being offered right now peace, not because we loved, but because Christ loved us. Paul celebrates to the Ephesians, starting in verse 2, going to verse 3, and that that long rambling sentence, which we'll begin to look at uh, in the coming weeks, he celebrates with, with 
unbridled happiness, with joy and wonder that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ and in Christ alone we find grace and peace, the wholeness, the forgiveness, the deep joy and blessing that we crave and we just cannot find anywhere else. And now you and I, we hear this same message being spoken to us this morning. Peace is available. Shalom is offered to us through God's grace. Not something we can achieve, not something that we can earn, but something that we can take hold of as a gift being offered to us. This message, friends, this essence of this letter has the power to transform us, to keep us from our striving. The daily grind that you and I engage in to try to find lasting happiness and satisfaction in things and in people things and people that can never give us the wholeness that we desire. The essence of this letter is the answer to the call of every human soul. Peace is available. It really is possible, but it's only through grace. It's only found in Christ. Well, let's finish with this. Again, over a over hundred years ago, uh, Professor John McKay, he said, to this book, I owe my life. The message of this book gave him, it has given countless other people and churches a new outlook, have given them new experiences, new attitudes to other people. It has filled God's saints with a deep love for God. Jesus Christ has moved into the center of their, of their lives. They were finally made alive. And Paul writes to the saints in Ephesians, authorized by the king himself, and he speaks these words, which I speak to you now. They still have the power to save and to transform us entirely. Will you hear it this morning? Will you believe this word and receive it as a gift being offered to you? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be given through this letter new vision, a new attitude, new affections, and new loves. May you receive this word as the very words of the king, powerful, authoritative, transforming. May you who are in Christ this morning know that you are a saint, set apart for God's purposes. You belong to him. And may you experience peace, real peace through grace offered by God through the work of his son Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this word that you, you have spoken to your people, gathered in different places, in different languages, in different kinds of buildings and situations, that to all of us, you offer peace through the grace of your son Jesus. Lord, would you begin to do a work in our church? which receives your words, believes them, and is utterly transformed by them. God, would you, would you help us as a church to, to cease from our strivings, to find rest and peace in Christ, and not, not in things, not in people, which we're tempted so often to turn to. Would you give us a life of repentance, constantly turning away from these things and turning to you? Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us this morning. Uh, that this is an offer being made to us again. Lord, would we hear it? Would we receive it? We ask for power now by your Spirit. And we ask that all in Christ's name. Amen.